Hey, thanks for watching today. We have an amazing message in just a minute from Pastor Gerald continuing in our Matthew series. I wanna let you know about a few things before we get into that. The first thing you need to know is that if you're watching this on October 9th, next Sunday, October 16th, is our Mission Sunday. This is a really, really awesome opportunity for you to hear firsthand from some of our missionaries. At church on Sunday, which we'll talk about it here on video as well, but we would really, really love to see you in person next Sunday morning. We're gonna hear from a couple of our missionaries at church and have a sweet time celebrating with them. But then later in the day too is our missions dinner. So that's Sunday night, October 16th. Come out for that. It's gonna be a super nice dinner and you're gonna get served a really good meal. And then we're gonna hear um, just more stories, more testimonies, more of how we can be partnering with some of our missionaries. And there's some flying in from literally all over the globe. Um, You're not gonna wanna miss that. The next thing is this, on October 23rd, we're gonna just go right back into another round of Connections class. So if you are new to ABC or if you feel new, um, we would love for you to get connected in that. Even if you've been here for a long time, but you've never taken the step to, to really see what it looks like to be a partner of our church, please attend that. It's a five week long class on Sunday at the nine o'clock service. The next thing is on October 30th, so the following Sunday, we've got a little event called Trunk or Treat, which is gonna be epic. We're doing it with a few other churches and we're gonna partner with them in hosting this event down in the Sunken Gardens Park, right in the middle of town. So there's gonna be a bunch of cars and their trunks will be open and they'll be decorated all fun and we'll hand out candy um, to obviously all of our churches who come, but we really think it's gonna be an awesome outreach event for a lot of the community as well. We really need people and candy, okay? And this is kind of like one of those things where, you know the experiment where if someone's getting beat up and a bunch of people are watching and you don't, you think, well, someone's gonna do something so you don't do it. I feel like that's what this is like. So we need you to be that person. Buy candy and we need you to sign up and have a car, okay? Host a trunk for this event. Uh, We really need you in order for this to be a success. So go online and sign up for that. Okay, last thing, something I'm probably the most excited about. On October 28th and 29th, we're gonna host an event called Culture Conference on the topic of gender and sexuality. So at any given point in culture and history, it seems like there's a few topics and ideas that rise to the surface and it's like, okay, everybody is talking about this and we need to understand what we think about this and how we engage with the culture in this. And this is certainly one of those topics. So we're hosting this event, we're bringing in a couple speakers um, who are sort of experts in this field and they themselves have some powerful personal testimonies uh, about them. So we have a guest speaker named Sam Alberry who's gonna come join us. And then we have a speaker named Drew Berryessa. Sam is the author of a book called Is God Anti-Gay? and Seven Myths About Singleness and a few others. He's a regular contributor on the Gospel Coalition. And then Drew Berryessa is a pastor up in Oregon. He wrote a book called Are We There Yet? Um, a book all about sexual transformation through the gospel. And it tells his own story. And he also leads um, his own nonprofit called the Living Letter Ministry that's dedicated to helping people find gospel transformation in terms of sexual identity. So we're having this conference. Uh, there's gonna be childcare, birth through fifth grade. The conference is free, but on Friday night, there's going to be a dinner you can buy for $10 a person or for for $30 a family. So 
Couple things there. We need some help watching the kiddos. Uh, and I'm looking at you, especially maybe older, more seasoned people. Um, our heart is to just equip our families so well for this event. And so, so many parents, we really want to be there. Their kids need somebody watching them those days. If you're interested in that, uh, please check our website and contact Sandy, our kids director, sandy at abcchurch.org. So kids uh, care, birth through fifth, there's food for $10 on Friday night. Um, please come out October 28th and 29th and hear some fantastic speakers, some great teaching on a biblical view of sexuality, um, and just enjoy some time together um, being equipped together so that we can love the world around us with both truth and grace. Okay, that's all I have. If you have any other questions or comments or need more info, just check our website, abcchurch.org. Enjoy. Hi, ABC family. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're so glad that you have joined us. Today, we continue to preach our way through the book of Matthew. And if you tuned in or were on campus last week, you heard Pastor Jeff teach us that our deepest need, just like this paralytic, his deepest need was not his physical affliction. His deepest need was to be forgiven. And that's true for us too. Whatever physical burdens we're carrying or emotional burdens we're carrying, those are not our deepest need, but our deepest need is actually to seek and receive the forgiveness of Jesus. And so because of that message from last week, now this week I have a burden. The burden that the Lord has laid on my heart is I want us all to see his heart, the heart of the forgiver, the heart of the one, Jesus, who is the one who has the authority on heaven and on earth to forgive sins. That's our deepest need, and my heart's cry is that we would see his heart. And that's why I've titled this message, The Heart of the Forgiver. And in order for us to understand and experience that, I want you to bring to mind some things uh, that you have wrestled with over the years. Maybe it's something that you're living under right now. Maybe it's a sin that brings you a level of shame that makes you feel disqualified from ever receiving the grace of God or that makes you believe that there's no way that Jesus could ever love me because of how I speak or how I act because of this sin that just has its grip on my heart. Have you ever felt disqualified, disqualified from the love of Christ or disqualified from being in the church? I sure have. Back in 2013, I was serving in a local church and I was asked to be on the launching elder board of a new congregation in Orange County of Southern California. And my family and I were all in. We bought a house in that town and we put our kids in the public schools in that town because we wanted to live and do our life right there where God had led us to set up a church. Um, I was on the preaching team. I was overseeing some small groups. My wife was involved in women's ministries. Like I said, we were all in. And despite the best of our efforts of uh, two and a half, three years down the road, because there was some key elements of our vision that were going unrealized, the elders chose to close down that local congregation and fold the people back into the mother church from which we had come. That was three and a half years after that launch. And of course, as you can imagine, all I can feel is failure at that point. And upon further reflection, 
wrestling with God, like, Lord, why? Why would you have us invest that deeply in that town for such a short amount of time? He began to reveal to me that there were some things that I had brought to the table that I needed to deal with. You see, I had relied on my call to ministry. I had relied on my preparation, my education. I had relied on my work ethic. I had relied on my family's willingness to sacrifice and to suffer for the sake of the advance of the gospel. I had relied on so many things, but I had not been relying on Jesus, the one whose church I was aspiring to build. That was something that I needed to repent of. That was something that as I wrestled with why were these circumstances mine to endure, the Holy Spirit just whispered to me, these are the things I'm allowing you to suffer so that you would have your eyes open and allow me to bring change in your heart at the heart level. Maybe as you think about the sin that is uniquely yours to wrestle with, maybe you've had an internal dialogue in your heart that goes something like this. I, I picked up a book called Gentle and Lowly. Dane Ortland wrote this book a couple of years ago, and I did not discover it until about a month ago. And in it, Dane, he quotes the Puritan authors, and he reflects on this one verse that Jesus gives in Matthew 11:28 28 through 30. That's the passage where he talks about his heart, and he uses one two-word description to describe his own heart as a shepherd. And he says, my heart is gentle and lowly. So that is why the, the book that Dane wrote is titled Gentle and Lowly. Dane is a gifted author. He's a, a wonderful scholar. Just had the privilege of listening to him and sitting under his teaching last week back in Pennsylvania at the CCEF conference, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. And I, I think Dane helps us understand what this internal dialogue with Jesus may sound like. It certainly resonates with the dialogue I had. Maybe it resonates with you as well. No, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside of me that's hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just in my past, it's in my present, too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person that I'm here to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is the heart of Jesus. That is the heart of the forgiver. We tend to think that our ongoing struggle with sin and our rise and fall of success in our battle against it somehow causes his love for us to wax or to wane. And what he's saying is, that's who I came to save. My heart is actually drawn toward you. 
The heart of Christ is not to cast you out, but he is inclined toward you and toward me in our struggle against sin. Did you hear the heart of Jesus in that dialogue? That's what I want us all to hear. That's what I want us all to feel today as we continue to preach our way through Matthew chapter 9 because Jesus is now moving on and he's going to call a man, call a man named Matthew to follow him as his disciple because his heart is for the sinner. So read with me from Matthew chapter 9. We'll begin reading at verse 9 and we'll read through verse 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And Jesus reclined at the table in his house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Father, here we are, your word in front of us open. We have just read it and heard it, and we are eager for your Holy Spirit to tune our ears to your voice, to tune our eyes, to fix our eyes on the person and the work of Jesus, that we might, Lord, see your heart. So would you please use these words from your word to reveal your heart to us this, this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So right out of the gate in verse 9, we see that Jesus sees sinners. I'll read it again. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. See, Jesus has already called Andrew and Peter unto himself back in chapter 4 of Matthew. And they were fishermen, right? And fishermen were not necessarily the highest rung on the social ladder, right? So Jesus is not discriminating based on the place that you hold in society. He calls fishermen like Andrew and Peter unto himself. And now he looks at a man called Matthew, who's a tax collector, and he calls him. And what we need to know is that for him to even have a conversation with someone like a tax collector is really scandalous. Imagine what it might have been like for this guy they call Matthew. He grew up as a typical Jewish boy, which means he would have learned the law from his father in his own house at an early age. And then at the appropriate time, he would have attended synagogue school with the other boys of his age six days a week from sunup until midday. And at the same time, in the afternoons, he would have been studying a trade like maybe carpentry or farming under the hands of his father. Eventually, Matthew would have watched his friends all take off and join their father in the family trade, according to their own skills and giftings and training. But somehow that just didn't appeal to Matthew. You see, Matthew, he had an eye for detail and he had a sharp mind. He was likely bilingual, being fluent in both Aramaic and Greek, the local trade language of the day. 
Matthew was well aware of the value of local commodities, of precious metals, and a variety of local and foreign monetary systems. Matthew likely possessed an entrepreneurial spirit, and he had an intense love for money. This is what most likely motivated him to make a contract with Rome to collect taxes on their behalf. They called this position a publican or a tax collector. Matthew, in order to get this seat, he would have submitted a bid to Rome and won it through the process of high bidding in order to earn the right to sit at, a, at the local crossroads and collect the taxes that were due from his own people on Rome's behalf. Now, he had put in his bid and he would adjust his tax rate to cover his bid rate as well as a handsome profit for himself and any other people that he had hired to work with him to collect the tax that was due. Bottom line is this, his love for money had overpowered his ethnic loyalty and everyone around him knew it and hated him for it. He was a sellout. He was a greedy, money-hungry sellout. He was a traitor in the eyes of his own people, and they hated him. He was regarded by all as morally and religiously corrupt. Tax collectors were held in the lowest esteem, in the same category as prostitutes. So we need to understand when Jesus sees one who is called Matthew, who is a tax collector, he is reaching down to the lowest social rung on the ladder of society. You understand why when the Pharisees see him associating with Matthew and other tax collectors, that it feels like a scandal to them. It's the same as Jesus reaching out and ministering to prostitutes, which he also did, by the way. You see, Jesus saw Matthew. That's what the text clearly says. He sees Matthew sitting in his tax booth, sitting in the place of his lucrative, sinful, idolatrous business. And Jesus saw him right there where he was. Because Jesus sees and Jesus knows. He saw Matthew and he knew the sinful inclinations of Matthew's heart. And he knew his sinful actions. He knew how money-hungry he was. And yet, he sees him. And this is just a beautiful, small demonstration of what Jesus does for each one of us. Just like he sees Matthew in his sin in the tax booth, he sees you and he sees me in our particular sin. He knows our sins and he sees us in our sin. And he does not just walk away. In fact, his heart is to draw you in, not cast you out. Look again at verse 9. Jesus sees Matthew and he says to him, follow me. You see, Jesus saw Matthew sitting in his sin, in his tax booth, and he didn't recoil. In fact, he moved in and he spoke, which is our second point. Jesus speaks to sinners. Jesus saw Matthew sitting in his tax booth, and similarly, he sees you sitting in your self-sufficiency, in your independence. Jesus sees you sitting in your workaholism. I certainly struggle with that. He sees you sitting in your people-pleasing tendencies, your codependency. He sees you there. 
He sees you sitting in your promiscuity, your unique flavor of sexual immorality that is the one that you particularly struggle with. He sees you there. He sees you sitting in your addictions to video games, pornography, alcohol, the substance of your choice. He sees you in your place of sin. He sees you sitting in your self-righteousness, your unforgiveness, your bitterness because of that person or those people who have done you wrong and haven't earned the right to have relationship with you. He sees you sitting in, you fill in the blank. Whatever it is that's right on the forefront of your mind in terms of that sin that you are convinced disqualifies you from his love, Jesus sees you sitting in that. And if nothing else, if when you try to fill in that blank, nothing comes to mind, he sees you sitting in your denial. And for those of you who can only see the things that disqualify you from his love, he sees you sitting in your self-loathing and he speaks to you. He says, follow me, because he doesn't want to leave you there. Yes, he sees you there. He is willing to meet you there, eager to meet you there, but he's not willing to leave you there. He says, follow me. And what was Matthew's response? He rose and he followed him. Now imagine yourself, Jesus seeing you right where you are, and imagine yourself hearing his call, follow me. Do you hear it? How will you respond to it? What are you going to do? I would say let's follow Matthew's example. Matthew got up immediately. He rose and followed him. Listen to Luke's story about what he did. He says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. That means that Matthew left his tax booth. He left his right to fulfill his contract for Rome. He left it all behind. The thing that once had the grip on his heart that kept him doing what he was doing, he left it to follow Jesus, though he didn't know what was up ahead. You see, Jesus is calling you and he's calling me to follow him. And as he does, he's asking us to leave our sinful tendencies behind. Leave behind the shame. Leave behind the significance and the security of your sin-laden identity and follow him into your new identity, one of being a chosen child of the Most High God. We are to follow him as a disciple, to follow him toward healing and freedom and to join him in his work. How? What does Jesus do? If we are to join him in his work, is there something that we can observe from his life that is worthy of our imitation? We find that in verse 10, which is our third point. Jesus gathers with sinners. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You see, Jesus is in Matthew's house. Listen to Luke's account of this same thing recorded in Luke chapter 5, verse 29. Luke says, and Levi. Now there's a difference. Levi is, I believe, Matthew's given name because Luke talks about him as a man being named Levi. And Matthew, in his account, says a man called Matthew. 
My given name is Gerald, but my children call me Kitty. Maybe you have a nickname like that too, right? So we are named one thing, but sometimes people call us another. That's what's going on here between Matthew and Levi. He's a man that's named Levi, but he's called Matthew. And Luke says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So Jesus sees Matthew in his tax booth, he calls to him, follow me, and then he leads him home to Matthew's own house, where Matthew holds a great feast and invites his friends. And who do you expect would be there but other tax collectors and other people that are in this category of being a sinner? Jesus gathers with sinners right there in Matthew's house. Jesus shares a meal with them. One of the most intimate gatherings, right? Think about who it is that you have meals with. They're either family, people that you know well, or people that you want to know better, right? That's what we do when we gather for a meal, and that's what Jesus does. He gathers with these folks, he shares a meal with them, and he gets to know them. Does the idea of Jesus sharing a meal with sinners present a problem for you? If it does, that means we've missed the heart of Jesus. Jesus desires intimate fellowship with those who will let him in. We even see this in the letter that he wrote in Revelation 3 to the church at Laodicea. See, Jesus has a letter written and delivered to that church, and he says, hey, I, I, know, I know your works. They're neither cold nor hot. I in fact, you feel not cold, not hot, but tepid in my mouth, and as a result, I'm going to spit you out. You see, you claim to be rich. You claim that you need nothing, but you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those I love, I discipline. So be zealous and repent. And then he says in verse 20, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. He is outside the door of this church's heart, knocking, longing to come in and have deep, intimate fellowship. And just like this church in Laodicea, Jesus clearly sees you in the truth of your mess, and he sees me in the truth of my mess. And he's not waiting for us to clean up our mess before we come back to him. He is knocking at the door of our heart, but he will not break through that door and come in. He is waiting for us to open it and invite him in. His promise is to come and to eat with you, even though you have that ongoing struggle with sin. He wants to gather with you, to enjoy intimate table fellowship with you. This is his heart for you. Could it be that Jesus sees you right where you are, right there in that point of sin, in your back and forth struggle with sin, and he says, follow me? How will you respond? He's knocking. Will you answer the door? Will you follow? If you choose to follow like Matthew did, chances are pretty good he's going to lead you right back home. He's going to take you right back to your own sphere of influence, and he wants to gather with you and with your family, with your friends, with the people that you work with, with the people that you hang out with. He's glad to socialize with you. 
because his heart is for you. It's to show mercy to sinners. That's what he's doing here in Matthew's house. And that's precisely what gets the attention of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees observe Jesus eating with these tax collectors and these sinners, and they scratch their heads. And lacking the boldness to approach him directly and the courage, they corner one of his disciples. And in verse 11, they ask this question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, in the Pharisees' mind, it didn't make sense for them because they would never associate with somebody so lowly, somebody so sinful, because they were ritually clean. Their motives are mixed and their approach is cowardly, but their question is valid. Why would Jesus hang out with sinners? Why would he hang out and eat with tax collectors? Always listening in and always being willing to lead his sheep, Jesus provides the answer for them and for us in verse 12. Verse 12 says this, When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This brings us to our fourth point. Why would he hang out with sinners? Because Jesus came to heal sinners. Jesus uses the illustration of a physician here. It's not those who are well that go seek the help of a doctor. It's people who are sick. And sin is like sickness. And Jesus is the physician who comes to heal those who are sick with the terminal disease of sin. Similar to how the leper did not make Jesus unclean when he touched him, hanging out with sinners does not make Jesus unholy. The righteousness of Jesus is not corroded at all by being in the presence of sinners. He moves toward us, and this is good news. This is good news. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we all have an ongoing problem with this sickness called sin. Sin damages us. And it always leaves a wound. And this wound can only be healed by mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus gives this reply to the Pharisees, and this reply is designed to humble them, but also to educate them. He says, go and learn what this means. Verse 13, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, he's saying, Pharisees, in all of your learning, you have failed to learn what the heart of your father actually looks like. You see, their self-righteous moral character would have nothing to do with such sinful people. Their moral character did not reflect the heart of Jesus because his moral character prioritizes mercy and steadfast love over sacrifice. And as he does this, he quotes Isaiah, Hosea 6, 6, that says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Do you hear the heart of your heavenly Father? He desires mercy. He desires steadfast love, not sacrifice. And we need to learn what this means too, don't we? We need to learn what it means to love mercy, to understand it. See, I think there's two primary ways that we need to learn mercy. First, as sinners, we need to learn to receive mercy so that we might be healed. 
Let me say that again. We, as sinners, need to learn how to receive mercy from Jesus so that we might be healed. You see, because of our sin, we feel like we're disqualified from receiving mercy. So we run and we hide. That's what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3, and that's what we still do today. We sin, we fall under conviction, and we run and hide. And perhaps the most damaging mark that sin leaves is that we tend to resist or deflect Jesus' assurances. And one of the sweetest assurances that Jesus offers us as his people is found in John chapter 6, verse 37, where Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Unpacking this verse in his book, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ, John Bunyan, that same Puritan author who wrote Pilgrim's Process, he imagines this dialogue between a sinner who struggles to receive mercy and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Listen to Bunyan, as quoted in Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Bunyan says this, But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. This promise was provided to answer all objections and does answer them. End quote. Do you hear the heart of your Savior, Jesus? He will not cast you out because of your ongoing, long-standing struggle with sin. You see, Bunyan reminds us that every objection that we might raise that would give Jesus an excuse to hold us away from his grace, to not extend mercy to us, it crumbles under the weight of his commitment to mercy. We need to learn how to receive mercy so that we might be healed of our sins. Secondly, we need to learn how to extend mercy to others so that they might be healed. Let me say that one more time. As saints, we need to learn how to extend the mercy of Jesus to others so that they also might be healed. Once we receive God's mercy, he intends to use us to display his mercy to others. Listen to Paul from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 18, Paul reflects on him receiving his own mercy. He says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul knows that he's received mercy not just for his own deliverance, but that through observing his life, Jesus might display his patience to people around him who would 
through their witnessing of Paul, they would come to faith in Christ. Church, when we receive mercy, Jesus wants to use us as an example to others. Through our lives, as they watch us receive mercy from God, they'll see the perfect patience of Christ in our lives, and they'll be drawn to place their faith in Him and find their eternal life, find their the cure for their deepest need, forgiveness for their sins. There are sinners all around us who are in desperate need of the healing touch of Jesus Christ. Most of these folks will never wander onto our campus. They will never come to one of our Bible studies. They may never come to our youth group or any of the other programs that we offer. The only chance that they might have to see the heart of Jesus is when you display it to them in your interactions with them. And unless they see his heart, a patient heart that loves mercy in you, they may never get to see it. You may be the only glimpse of Jesus that anyone gets to see. Who comes to mind when you think of people who are in desperate need of the healing touch of Jesus? Who does the Holy Spirit bring to the forefront of your mind? Who is that person? What is their name or what are their names? Now, with your own sin in mind, you know that one that you just can't seem to kick? that one that finds you in desperate need of mercy? What would it look like for you to actually receive the healing mercy of Jesus Christ and find healing for your sin so that you might be able to extend that same mercy to that other person so that through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that person might find forgiveness, that person might find themselves folded into the kingdom of God, into the family of God, into the church of God. What might that look like? Church, we are the only hope for some people to see Jesus. Let's display the heart of Christ as we interact with them in our homes, in the workplaces, in the schools, in the grocery store, as we conduct business in and out of town. Let's do so receiving mercy from the heart of Christ and offering mercy to others in the power of the Spirit directly from the heart of Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous picture of your heart you have revealed to us through this passage. Thank you, Jesus, that you are one who sees us in our sin. You're, you're one who speaks to us in our sin. You call us away from it. You are one who goes home with us and gathers with us and our people, though we are sinners. And you are the one who desires mercy rather than sacrifice. You're the one who came to heal sinners. Lord, it's our earnest desire that each of us would receive the healing for the sin that is still ours that we're battling. And as we receive healing, Lord, it's our desire that you would use us to extend that same mercy, that, that same healing to others. So please, send forth your spirit. Bring us healing as we fix our eyes on Jesus. And in the power of the spirit, help us to offer that mercy, that healing to others through faith in Jesus. Oh Lord, don't be hindered by what we have and haven't asked. Your heart 
the heart of the forgiver is beautiful. Create that heart in us so that when people look at us, they see your heart. That's your wise plan. And we want to play our role in your church as you build it. So please do what only you can do. Reach your people and create in them the miracle of faith. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for tuning your ears to the voice of God as we read and sought to unpack his word. And it's my prayer for all of us, myself included, that our hearts would look more and more like the heart of Jesus and that that would be clearly evident to those around us. So may that be your goal this week as you press on in faith. We love you. We long to be with you. We long to help you. So if, if you need some particular help in receiving mercy from God, would you call the church office? We have a whole host of people who would love to come alongside of you and help walk with you. And we'd love to pray with you for those names that the Lord brought to mind, those names of people who need to receive Jesus and find in him forgiveness. So let's do this together, church. We love you. Have a great week.